Hey, what is up, everybody? In this episode, we got Rick Sessinghaus on the show, and Rick is an incredible mental game performance coach. He's highly sought out, uh, very well known for being Colin Morikawa's coach. Uh, he's just been doing incredible things. I'm very excited to have him on the show and really tackle, again, mental game performance and some very actionable things that you all can take away and you know implement in your own game. So let's get into it with Rick. Hey, what's up? I'm your host, Kyle Drink, and we're going beyond the swing. That thing's going. Things are good. Yeah, busy. Uh, I'm sure you've been busy throughout the summer, and uh, I'm in Los Angeles, so it kind of stays busy all year round, but uh, yeah. all good. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on, and I, you know, I just do this very, like, again, conversationally, um, very selfishly, because, you know, <laughs> I get to talk to really great people and, and learn from them, and I, I feel like you know, a lot of people can, can learn as well, but, you know, to start, I think what, you know, I'm most curious about, and I think a lot of people are curious about is your work with Colin. Sure. You know, where that started, kind of what you guys work on. I mean, you can go into whatever you are comfortable sharing with that, but. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I've been very, very fortunate to work with a lot of juniors throughout the years. I've been teaching golf for 28 years and, uh, early on in my career, I, I really gravitated toward junior golfers and, uh, about almost 18 years ago, uh, um, a, a little boy and his father came walking down the driving range at a golf course here near Los Angeles and where I was teaching and came over and, and asked if they could start working with me. They had taken some group lessons and, and that person was Colin Morikawa. And, um, it was a great, um, a great relationship that, I would see him pretty much every week, um, almost our Tuesday afternoon uh, uh, time uh, for the next 10 years until he went to Cal um, uh, in college. So I got to see him regularly, which was wonderful. Um, he had a great attitude. Parents were wonderful. They were just supportive, yet not too in in your face or bossy or anything like that. So that was refreshing for to say the least. And mm -hmm. he just had this um this this attitude about learning and just uh great questions, very coachable. And again, you have talented players and we've all seen it. Um but that doesn't always equate into great scores or into long-term uh success. Mm -hmm. And so so with Colin um it was just wonderful to see somebody who yeah, had talent, there's no question about it. It worked really really hard had a great attitude, wanted to learn more. And um, so having that was was special for me because I coach a little bit different than maybe the, the traditional coach. Um, I certainly work on swing. I certainly have done all those things. Um, but most of my lessons with Colin and other players were done on the golf course. So about 70% of my lessons were done with him. There was a time in my career where I actually didn't have a, a true driving range to work off mm. of. I had a little net. And then we had a nine hole uh, golf course to, to work out off of. So it was a, uh, I, I'm a big believer that in order to coach the game, you have to be able to play the game. It's not just about uh, perfect positions and track man numbers and such. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do believe there's uh, it's very important to have variability and to uh, teach even junior golfers at a young age, how to make decisions and how to look at um all this different situations and such. So, so yeah, it was, it was, it was great because he took it on and he, he embraced it and the parents embraced it. It wasn't just like, Hey, I need my kid to be on the range for three hours hitting seven irons. And uh, cause I've had a few of those. So don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. I mean, not everybody in, felt my style was the best for their son or daughter. Um, but it certainly was something that I felt, um, 
very strong about uh, because it allowed me to also start coaching about the mental game and about how to deal with pressure. And, and I believe the only way to do that is, is out on the golf course. So how much or how deep are you? Were you into your flow code and things at that point or is that how they found you or is like, is, did this develop through time? Yeah, no, it developed. Thanks for asking. It developed through time. I mean, I, I played college golf at a, a division one school here, Cal state Northridge. I was a mediocre player at best. And um, yet I was obsessed with the game. And so, you know, I start my teaching career, member of the PGA, and it was very traditional swing lessons, putting lessons, you know, perfect positions, all that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, teaching a model swing and all those things that I, I cringe at looking back at it. But um, I then became obsessed with the mental game, went back to school, uh, got a master's and then a doctorate in applied sports psychology. Uh, I wrote a book about six, 17 years ago called Golf, the Ultimate Mind Game, writing another one now. And then so it, it just kept getting more and more down that rabbit hole. And so when I met Colin, I had uh, pretty much just completed my doctorate um, and such. But I think they came to me because they knew that I was working with a lot of competitive juniors. Uh, Colin was going to be a competitive junior by the, you know, he was eight years old at the time, but they, they knew is something he loved. Um, and yeah, I just tried to match my philosophy was certainly swing mechanics and fundamentals, but there was also now the mental side uh, of the game and that that's continues to evolve. So the last few Mm -hmm. years I've gone down this rabbit hole of what we call flow states. And that's something that's being researched and it's proven. I mean, there's brainwave activities, heart rate variability, there's, there's physiological things that are associated with it. Yet as a mental game coach, I'm trying to create psychological and emotional tools to help somebody get into a flow state, or maybe your listeners would call it a zone, being in the zone. But we now know it's um, trainable, it's measurable, and um, and that's what excites me. So my business has gone less and less about swing instruction and more and more about mental coaching throughout the years. And I would kind of classify myself more as a performance coach because I certainly do still you know, teach the golf swing. There's no question about that, but I'm looking at all factors. I mean, it could be from diet to sleep patterns to, uh, you know, nutrition to certainly how you prep and stuff. Cause I'm fascinated with all the puzzle pieces that go with it. Yeah. I mean, our, our story is very similar. I was, I was the same way. And, you know, we were talking about my time in Chicago and I was the same way. I mean, everything I would study YouTube videos, I would study professionals and I was looking for that secret move you know, I want to know what do I know that most people don't <laughs> um, yeah. type thing because, you know, that was like that was the puzzle pieces I like to solve. But it didn't take long when I was like, I don't think these players are playing as well as I think they should. So then I got into, you know, really studying sports psychology. I've read everything, including your book. Um, I mean, I've read Dr. Joe Parent, um, you know, Rotella. I've read everything I get my hands on. I even had uh, my mom had some actual psychology books from her college. I was reading through textbooks. I was like, what, what can I learn about this in performance? You know, so I went down that rabbit hole. I studied with John Weir of mental golf type and learned about personality type. Um, So, I mean, I just been down that rabbit hole for so long. So I was excited to to talk with you, but so what, I mean, I have, you know, what I've learned in my philosophies, I'm really curious to hear like what the zone and you said, those things are trainable. Like, what do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. I think first off is back, back when I was doing my doctorate, uh, they called it the zone. And back then the professors would get more into, well, you know, the zone is fleeting. Uh, We're not real quite sure. 
you know, how to get into it, how you stay into it. And I didn't like that answer. I'll be honest with you, because, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we look at like golf and, and it's a very cause and effect sport, we know when the, where the ball goes and why, you know, we know club face and path, we know all these physics, we know all this stuff, but why couldn't we get that going on in psychology? And so now you fast forward to the last few years and we do have, you know, technology like brain scans, we have heart rate monitors and stuff like that, that we can look at what are the physiological responses of somebody when they now deem themselves in a flow state. And so you, then you try to reverse engineer from what got them into that. So I'm very much now into what I would call state uh, management. Well, how do I train somebody to be in their state? Now, performance state could be their mental, their emotional, and their physical. Well, the mental is what am I focusing on in the moment, the cognitive side of focus and bringing that information in the environment. What does that environment mean to me? Because that can now trigger emotional responses, whether it's fear or confidence. And then that has a physical response into us, which could be tension and grip pressure. It could be my heart rate goes up. It could be my tempo changes. And now, because golf is a physical game, ultimately, we have to hit a object and if that physical system is not what it was trained to do, then we're going to have different sequences. We're going to have different um, swings show up. So when we look at flow state, um, there's different things that could trigger that. Um, you know, for the listeners, you've probably been on your home course. And even if you made a double bogey in the last hole and you walk up to the next tee and you go, oh, I love this hole, right? And it might be a reachable par five or something like that, that what you've had great memories on. Oh man, I birdied the last three holes. on. Now, so we have just the image of the hole has triggered a different association in my body, which now could be of confidence of, I can't wait to hit this. And then three holes later, you could have just birdied a hole, get on this really long par four, go, oh, I always do bad on this hole. I always hit it to the right. I always, and you haven't hit a shot yet. But just what you're focusing on and what it means to you has changed your entire internal, I call it narrative of, of what you're thinking about mm -hmm. and, and how you're feeling. Thus, the golf swing is going to show up differently. So state management has a lot to do. It starts with focus. What am I paying attention to in the present moment? Um, it also deals with how am I perceiving the present moment, right? Like you and I work with really good players where you ask them about is pressure good or bad? and you get all kinds of answers. Mm -hmm. And all I know is it depends on the individual, right? And some people feel that pressure is something bad and interferes with it. Oh my gosh, that means I'm going to do bad. And I, you know, they fear because pressure for them is associated with fear and anxiety and don't mess up. While other players that we've both worked with, that is, hey, pressure is good. Pressure makes me focus. I can't wait to do it. Pressure means excitement, anticipation. So we have to be very clear on how we define uh, situations. And in this case, you know, pressure is a great word or stress or all these words that I think are thrown into this negative category way too easily instead of saying, wow, I love pressure. It makes me focus better. I can't, I love the feeling of that adrenaline pumping through my body. And I, so I talk a lot about the association of the event. What does this shot mean to you? Because that's going to trigger an emotional response, which then triggers a physical response. So um, I could keep talking for hours. So, so I don't know if you have any, any um, comments well, or anything on that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess the, my first question would be how long does that take to link? So if there's a situation that stresses somebody, 
and they just stand out there and go, well, I actually, you know, I'm excited for this situation. It's, it's kind of BS. Like they're going to, you know, their minds are like, eh, I don't know about that. This is still pretty scary type thing. Like how long does it take for that belief pattern to truly change or the association? And I'm sure it depends on the individual, but. Uh, yeah, but like even back to, let's say I'm on a par three with uh, water on the right. It's 175 yards. Okay. Mm-hmm. I look at the water. I go, oh crap, don't go in the water. That If I do, that means a, uh, I, I have a penalty. If I have a penalty, I have a higher score. If I have a higher score, I lose the match, blah, blah, blah. Right. Our, our mind starts racing of what potentially could happen. It hasn't even happened yet. Sure. And we now have a fear response. My question for that person on the tee is, have you ever hit a shot uh, from 175 yards successfully? And 99% of the players I've ever worked with say, of course, Rick, what are you talking about? I'm a really good player. I go, great. That's all that's required is a 175-yard shot. You're getting mm-hmm. lost in this. In this, It is relevant. Don't get me wrong. A water hazard is relevant to a decision-making. Maybe I move my target 12 feet more to the left. Uh, totally relevant. But it's not to be obsessed about. It's not to be triggered into, oh, my gosh, it's what is the shot playing? It's playing 175 yards. I'm moving my target 12 feet to the left. I'm hitting a hold-off cut with a six iron. That's what you're doing. Have you done it before? Mm-hmm. Of course I have done. So I'm using past memories to replace the current trigger. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have people write down, I used to call it a, a confidence resume, but now with my younger players, I call it kind of like computer folder, right? Is what are your best shots you've ever hit? Put it in your computer folder so you can access that later when you need it. We all have these great memories. Unfortunately, a lot of golfers, their memories tend to be remembered only the negative shots because we created a lot of emotion to that memory is built a lot on emotion. We remember things a lot. We put emotion to, well, a lot of golfers hit a bad shot, slam a club. Here I go again. I can't believe how bad I am. And they, they anchor, unfortunately, those negative shots so much that it's easier for them to recall them. Yet if I say, Hey, recall a great six iron people go, uh, uh, I'd have to think for a while. If I said, Hey, have you hit a poor six iron? Oh yeah. I'll tell you that last week. And, and they're very negative biased on that. So I'm just asking people to be fair. Um, mm-hmm. And when you do hit a good shot, anchor how great it was, how it felt, what the process behind it was, how you visualized all the things that led to that great shot. But we need to remember those so we can replace um, a, a pattern of, well, that water is now mean fear, but really the shot is 175 yards. Have I done that? Oh, of course I have. I did it last week in my home club. I had, now I've shifted focus. Which now, which now shifts the emotional response, which now shifts physical. So that's how I look at it from a short term. But yeah, I want people to understand what are those, those negative triggers in their environment, whether it's the first tee, whether it's they're playing with a certain player, whether it's a type of golf course that does bring up fear or anxiety, right? So then in coaching, we certainly can re-evaluate. I do a lot of cognitive reframing. How could I look at this differently? Uh, doesn't mean positive, by the way, just differently. And you're Mm -hmm. asking the brain now to go, oh, I can look at it here and this and this and this. And you're giving your now mind some options instead of just going to the default, which is, oh, there's water. Oh, I don't want to go in there. And and it's just a data point, though, is really what it is. It's interesting, too, when you say that, because you see players practice a, a lot of times juniors, too. But they'll they they'll hit a good shot, another good shot, another good shot. You won't hear a peep. And then all of a sudden the missed shot, it's like, oh, that sucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, that's got to be reinforcing a lot of that negative connotation as well. Right. There, there's no question. I mean, our self-talk is in the moment directly affects our confidence the most. Okay. There's other things that affect confidence. Um, 
but self-talk, how I'm appraising that shot, you know, but a lot of players have um, very, very, very high expectations because we have had success. We have hit every shot really well before, and we expect that to occur again and again. Um, I think what's been great about, let's say, you know, analytics in the last five years or so is we look for patterns. So I always talk about patterns and dispersion more than what's your best shot you've ever hit or your worst shot you've ever hit. That to me is kind of irrelevant. Um, I'm looking at performance patterns and that way it manages expectations better. And I think people can certainly have a better strategy, but when a shot doesn't match their expectations, which usually means frustration, we can deal with it in a better way. So I'm very much into post-shot routines and learning and curiosity um, is, is a much it's a much better emotional state to be curious about something than to be critical and judgmental. And so that's how I'm replacing it. But I'm, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think players, they are, they have way too high expectations. And then when they hit that really, really good golf shot, they go, well, yeah, of course I'm a scratch player. And I was like, just admit it was a damn good, damn good shot. Come on, Mm -hmm. you know, come on, get over yourself a little bit. Right. (laughs) So um, I think golfers, and I think they, I've had a few talks where they go, well, I don't want to show my playing partners that I'm get excited about that birdie. I go, why not? I mean, and we take some of the joy out of it, I think, because we're supposed to be monotone the whole time or whatever. I I don't know. That's my my take on it is I, yeah. I'm a somewhat emotional guy. I would want to remember the great shots and anchor those and and then learn from the poor shots. So that doesn't take me down a negative rabbit hole. Yeah, I always call that like a Hollywood focus, like you know, the world wants everybody to be just a stone face, like Tiger Woods type. You know, I tried to, when I was younger, I just didn't play well at all. Cause that does not fit my personality type <laughs> at all. You know, I'm always my best exactly. when I was out there, like, you know, joking, laughing, talking, Well, a lot of people would look at it and be like, wow, he's not focused at all. He's just kind of dicking around, but that's when I always played my best. This show is brought to you by Mental Golf Type, and if you haven't heard of Mental Golf Type yet, then you need to go to mentalgolftype.com and check this out because this is an incredible, powerful mental game and performance system that you can implement very easily because it is tailored to how you and how you are mentally wired. So some of the questions you might have had along the way of why can I perform great on practice? Why do I hit it great on the range and I go on the course and it's something totally different? Why am I inconsistent? Why can I score so well one day and the next is something totally different? Well, all of those questions have to do with how you are mentally wired, how you are using your mental energy, how you're seeing targets, how you're making decisions. This is all stuff that has to do with your mental golf type and you could take your free assessment and figure out a lot of things really quick for absolutely free at mentalgolftype.com. So you definitely want to get over there and check that out because I can't even imagine trying to coach players without knowing that information. Uh, so again, check out mentalgolftype.com. You won't regret it. Now let's get to that show. No, exactly. And you and I, 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 I've studied personality profiling too with uh, an assessment that I utilize and you know, there are throughout the history of golf, there is not one perfect personality type. Uh, It's not even close. I mean, like if I look at, you know, I mean, you bring up Tiger, but he was an extremely emotional guy. Um, uh, But if you look at like a Brooks Kepka and then a Rory McIlroy and then a Colin Morikawa and then a Bryson DeChambeau, to me, those are four distinctively different personality types that have all won major championships. So who you are can play great golf. You trying to be somebody else, I think, is counterproductive. Uh, I always tell people it's like 
you know, you get a really good player, let's say a college player, and they like to to draw the ball, right? That's their preference of off the tee. And I said, okay, this next 18 holes, you can hit nothing but cuts off the tee. They could do it because they're a talented player, but it would be very stressful for them the whole day to think about how am I going to cut it? How my preferred is to draw. Same thing with personalities. I'm a, a very outgoing guy who, like you, thought I had to be quiet and stone-faced. And that's stressful for me. If I get to have fun, and fun is a, a loose word, but if I get to talk to my playing partners, if I get to interact with them, if I get to you know, cheer on a birdie or something like that, that to me feels like who I am. And I'm playing a much, much, much better state from hole one through 18. Yeah. So let's, let's go down that rabbit hole of expectations because that's one I deal with with juniors all the time. I mean, I, it's, this is a very broad question, but how, how do you handle that? Or what are some kind of scenarios you might've had with players where you help them? I don't know if overcome it's the right way or put it just into perspective, I guess. Yeah. That's the key word is perspective. So I, I do a couple things. One would be, I, I call it kind of a reality check and this could be in person at a range or even on a golf course where again, I, I still give a lot of playing lessons where um, let's say it's just 150 yard par three, they get to tee the ball up. Okay. So the lie is exactly how they want it. And I said, you get five balls now. Okay. How many of these balls do you think you're going to hit? Or, or I always give them, what do you think your average proximity to the hole is going to be? Right. And they're going to give me some silly thing like, oh, 13 feet. And I say, okay, good luck with that. Okay. <laughs> now I don't even say that. I don't say that, but I said, okay, great. Let's give you five shots. It's teed mm -hmm. up. Okay. And there's no crazy weather or anything like that, but we have a middle hole location, 150 yards away. Yes. There's bunkers and all that kind of stuff. And then they hit the five shots and now we average it and they're going, oh, I guess I'm not as good as I thought. I said, don't say it that way. I just know that that's your pattern. And guess what? That pattern is actually quite, quite good in the world of golf. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now you have these five shots and let's say they averaged, um, I don't know, 35 feet, right? And they hit the greens four out of five times. And the other one was, you know, you know, that's still quality shot. I mean, best players in the world, let's say are 23, 24 feet. Okay. You're not the best players in the world yet. You can compartmentalize and go, Oh, okay. Now I kind of know what to expect a little bit more. So people's expectations are so unrealistic to begin with. Mm. So I will do that. Or, you know, TrackMan has TrackMan combines or something like that to really open up people's like, this is really where your skill sets at. Okay. The other part of that is shifting the word expectations a little bit. I get why we get caught in that. I'm you put a lot of time in, you practice hard, you're a good player, you expect X result. Totally mm -hmm. get that. And yet you and I both know that it's not always about the outcome. Obviously, we want to shoot low scores and I want people to embrace outcome and win tournaments. Yet I I shift expectations into either process goals or I call standards that have to do more with behaviors in order to shoot, let's say par, what type of person do you need to be? Now they go, what are you talking about, Rick? I, you know, I need to make some birdies. I go, I, I get, I get that. But what is going to help you get to that goal of 72 or below? And we start getting into processes like, Hey, I'm going to be going through my full pre-shot routine, commit to the shot. I'm going to commit to my shop through visualization and seeing my visualization as a clarity of an eight, nine or 10. And now we're getting into the, the controllables. We're getting into things that we've linked. And this is like with flow code. We've linked, let's say, their clarity of visualization to focus, which now leads them to a better flow state. Great. That's in their control. Hey, Rick, you know what? I also need to be composed out there because sometimes I get 
a little down on myself. I'm going to do that post shot routine you talked about, learn from a shot without being critical. I'm going to be composed that day. And I'm going to, great. Now we may still expect to shoot par, but now we're creating um, some behaviors that will at least support that. And then at the end of the round is when I'm going to ask, did you meet your standards? Not meet your expectations because that's going to be, well, I shot 74. No, I did. And oh my gosh. It's like, hey, you know what, Rick? I really did. 90% of the time I went through my full pre shot routine, visualized it. Hey, really proud of myself there. Now we can have better conversations for development of the player. What's your what's your thoughts on like scoring goals? Um, I'm going to cop out and say it depends on the player. Um, <laughs> I I believe, um, you know, part of flow is having clear goals. That is, is that's a, a prerequisite for flow is you have a clear goal of what's in front of you. For some, it does start with an outcome. Okay, I work with some players who want to win tournaments. Great, I think that's good. I mean, I, I don't. Know, I grew up in a very competitive. Uh, household playing all sports and i think you wanted to win right i mean i hope um mm -hmm. so having the outcome to me is a starting point for clear goals i don't think it's the ending point um some people that scoring goal or i want to be in the top 10 or i want to get this ranking point or something it does funnel focus that's a good thing this is all about how do you funnel focus other people say oh no rick if i think of score my gosh i get distracted i get in the future i go fine then that may not be a good trigger for them Okay. I have some players who have no problem looking at a leaderboard and going, huh? Okay. I'm one back with three to play and it's just neutral. And other people are like, Oh my gosh, I got to do this. And, and that looking at a leaderboard triggers a different emotional response. So I want my players to get comfortable about talking about score because you can't ignore it when you play at higher levels. So mm. we might as well at least embrace and say, Hey, because nowadays, junior golf, college golf, everything's done on the phone. Now you can look at leaderboards like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Professional golf all over the place. You know where you stand. Let's embrace it. Let's not be scared of it. So my overarching thing is that I think it's, it's, it's empowering when we don't allow a result to dictate our emotional state. Awesome. But uh, uh, outcome goals can funnel focus in a positive way. If you have now a plan of how am I going to win this tournament? What kind of person do I need to be? What's my strategy? Those are now more process-based. I get it. But I know, and I, I talk about this a lot, when because everybody says it's only about the process. And I go, well, why are you doing the process again? And they, they go, well, to get that outcome. I go, yeah. So why don't we stop ignoring that there's an outcome out there and embrace mm -hmm. it? Because me preparing to shoot 80 next week is completely different than me trying to prep, prep to shoot 68. I'm just letting you know. 80, I don't have to prep. 68 is going to take a lot of prep for this next week. Okay. So the process is going to meet what the, the outcome is. Let's get clear on the outcome and then we can develop processes. But one of my pet peeves is when we just, the blanket statement on the mental games, it's not about the pro, uh, excuse me, it's not about the outcome. It's not about the outcome. I go, all I know is we sign a scorecard every time we play competitive golf and we have our rankings are all over the place. Why don't we embrace it for crying out loud and mm -hmm. say, hey, it is a lot about the outcome. And now how do we get to that outcome? What are the things I need to do to prepare myself? What can I do morning of that? Maybe I need to do 10 minutes of mindfulness to be calmer. Great. But we link it in a positive way to the outcome. So I can get all I can go down a, a lot of rabbit holes with this, but um <laughs> I, I've studied enough of research to know that outcome goals can be a wonderful way to help people focus. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just one that's never made a lot of sense to me when I would hear, you know, I don't count your score, things like that. I mean, I because I grew up, I mean, I played every sport of the sun, I mean, football, basketball, baseball, everything had a scoreboard in front of you. Exactly. You know, so I'm like, I'm just like, this is the only sport where, I mean, you still have your scorecard, but, you know, why would I not want to know where that's at, depending on where, <laughs> where I want to be? So that one's never made a lot of sense to me, but I do understand, like, look, what does it take to get to that score instead of just you know, riding the emotional roller coaster. Ooh, I bogeyed. Now I'm up here, birdied. Now I'm down here. You know what I mean? So oh, exactly. I, I totally understand that. Um, I had something else I was going to say on what you were saying. And I totally slipped. Hmm. And I understand golf is different than other sports. I played football and I was a quarterback and believe me, the coach is calling different plays. If you're three points down with a minute 40 to go and you got two timeouts, you don't just go, well, uh, it's not about the outcome. We're going to just run these three running plays and run out the clock. You would lose the game. So it, to me, it's understanding situations and not letting a score now dictate your emotional state. It's used as data. I think if somebody's one back with two to play, could it change them going for a par five and two? Maybe, right? I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. I'm just saying it could. Um, but if I ignore it, like, nope, nope, nope. I, I don't want to know what I, where I stand. And then later on you go, oh, if I would have known that, I would have maybe won. Okay. So it, it's more about the association of when people think of score, what comes to mind for them. And sometimes it's a, it really helps them focus. And you're right. Sometimes it, it also can become a distraction. Like, oh no, I don't want to mess up. But it's okay. Let's deal with that then. That's a different skill of being able to stay in the present moment uh, and not get ahead of ourselves. But well, I don't want to, some- I don't want to ignore that, that that's out there. Yeah. Well, I think some of that leads into some of the suppression tactics too, that you hear. Don't think about it. Don't, you shouldn't, don't add up your score. I mean, I see you shaking your head. So you got to have some thoughts on that one. But I mean, it's kind of like when somebody says like, don't be nervous. It's another round of golf. I'm sitting there like, well, it's not. It's a pretty, pretty big tournament. Can we, can we embrace that, that it's making us feel a little different? You know, I'm, I, there's, there's a ton of studies, but, but one of my favorite ones has to do with, um, with public speaking and they took, and, and, and I'm, I'm getting this study a little wrong listeners. So if you, you know this one, but, um, they took, let's say 20 people who are going to give a speech, um, who are all very, very nervous and very anxious about what was going to come because public speaking for a lot of people is associated with being scared and fearful and embarrassment mm-hmm. and all these things they don't want to do, right. Public speaking. And they took half of them and put them in a room and did mindfulness um, breathing. And then they put the other half in the other room and had them jump up and down and say, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. Okay. Now, which group did better was the actual I'm excited group. Okay. Which was I, they were reframing what the moment meant. The mindfulness breathing is awesome. It can get our physiological system under control a little bit, but once they walk into the room, it's still triggered as, oh crap. I don't want to screw up and embarrass myself. So cognitive reframing is let's look at score. Let's look at this tournament and look at it in a different way. So when people say, oh, this is a really important tournament. It's an AJGA event. I've never played in it. I go, wonderful. Isn't this so cool that we get to play in this event? What do you mean, Rick? I go, would you rather just be at home and wishing you were playing in it? Well, no. I go, you signed up for it. I go, yeah. And I go, well, how else could you look at this? Now, you're right. I don't say, hey, just look at it like the tournament you played in last week with the one day. I go, could we be excited about this? Well, yeah, I'm almost too excited. I go, great. That's a much better place to be than anxious and fearful. 
And then I'm on the first tee, Rick, and my heart's beating in my, out of my uh, chest. I go, great. I'll tell you all these great players that have felt that too. I don't want people to think that that's a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then in order, because it's so important, I then double down and say, well, if it's important, they go, yeah, it is really. I go, then what do we need to do the night before? Well, we need to get a good night's sleep, Rick, and I need to – great. What do we need to do the morning of? Oh, Rick, I need to get there plenty of time. And now we can check off all the things that are in their control, and because it's important, they actually might do them now. They don't – they may not half-ass them, Okay. So to me, I want them to embrace it's important. I want them to embrace the opportunity. I want to, and I also say, you may screw up too. Hey, I got plenty of players who have screwed up big time and they go, oh, and then we get to learn and we get to move and, and adjust. So I'm with you. I'm not in, again, I understand suppression in the moment. I don't think it's a long-term uh, development tool because I think people don't deal with what they're feeling and why they're feeling that uh, because then we can go somewhere with it. Like, hey, I'm anxious. Why? I don't want to screw up. Why? Well, there's college coaches watching and I don't want to embarrass myself. Okay, that's legit. Let's, let's talk about that and mm. say, hey, would you rather just be at home right now and not? Well, no, Rick, I want to play. I go, great. So I start to shift the perspective by asking questions, by saying, could we look at this different way? Could we? And yes, we then we do get down to some processes of routines and stuff like that. But the overarching, how am I going to view it is the key part. And I want them to either be neutral or be excited or this is cool. I signed up for this, right? I want them to take ownership that they actually signed up for this. They weren't forced to do any of this. Uh, and then that gives them now a choice in, in the matter. So that's how I look at it. No, that's beautiful. Um, and that's a good segue into one thing I want to talk to you about with like more external forces, we'll call it, um, you know, peanut gallery parents, you know, whatever <laughs> that might be causing some anxiety had some kind of issues recently which is why this is a hot topic of you know a player that's um just getting anxious with some pressure from whether it's high school coaches or stuff like that it's made good progress but now is you know starting to get emotional like am I, you know am i working hard enough type stuff so like in that situation when it's not coming from the player like what's your take on that yeah so i i talk a lot with my one-on-one -on -one and even through flow code, we talk about just the basic psychology principle of stimulus and response, right? There's something stimulus in my environment. How are you going to choose to respond to it? Now I am much older and wiser and mature now than I was when I was a 16 year old golfer. Okay. However, I still want these players to understand they do have a choice in how they respond to some of these external distractions. Um, hey, my parents are really tough on me. Once I finish the 18th hole, all they want to tell me is how bad I did on this and this, and they want to pick apart. I go, great. Let's talk about how I, as a coach, can help those parents. Hey, parents, did you know that when you're grilling them on the three putt they made on 17, that that's not really conducive for us uh, moving forward? And I give the parents now a, a way of looking at the round in a different way. Um, doesn't mean you you push it across that, hey, they shot 80 and stuff like that, and you want to get better. I, I get that part, but I would want to know truly what the distraction is. And if it's, hey, my parents are putting pressure on me. Okay, why? Oh, wow, man. They, they really want me to get a college scholarship and it's everything's about that. I go, okay, well, do you want to, right? And then that's a big question because then they go, well, I'm not sure anymore. I'm like, oh boy, now we got somebody who doesn't even enjoy it anymore. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, um, Again, I try to go big, big picture first of what is the actual external distraction and how does that make them feel? 
Um, and is there something that's in their control? Could they have a conversation with their parents? And they go, oh, I don't know, Rick, you don't know my parents. I go, okay, can I help you out with that? Can I, can I tell them stories about when Colin grew up and how his parents were just supportive and, and, or, you know, and that's part of what I think our role as, as coaches is to also help the parents out, help, um, uh, them understand that how they behave on the golf course, watching their golfer or their, you know, their kids really affects <laughs> the, the performance and enjoyment for their kids. So I I've taken on a big role of, of, you know, talking to parents and, and helping them out a little bit more. I know I'm kind of going off a, on a side rail here, but I think it's important for the, the junior golfer to know what's in their control and what's out of their control. Now what's out of their control what I'm coaching is how is your gonna your response going to be for it? Are you going to use it as fuel to focus more? Are you going to use it as something like, hey, it's out of my control. I'm just going to do what coach said. I'm going to do my routines. That's a lot easier said than done, everybody. I understand that. But I think it you have to have the conversation first to start to open up those those options and those ideas. And and some of it could be, yeah, Rick, I think I really need to talk to my parents like, hey, can you like settle down on – being so emotional on the golf course when I make a, a, a bogey and you, I can see you. It's like, sometimes those are real, they're tough conversations, but then they make a huge difference moving forward. Cause the parents honestly sometimes don't realize the effect they have on their child out there. Um, but I think the other way I look at it is when I work with the junior golfers, especially, and I ask them, Hey, do you want to play division one? Oh yeah. Do you want to play professional golf? Oh yeah. And I go, Oh, Okay. So do you think Tiger Woods has to deal with any external distractions? Oh, yeah. I go, okay. And he trained that at a very early age. So I kind of use the long-term development of, hey, it might be your parents now. It might be your college coach later. It might be the media later. There's always going to be something that could distract you. We might as well deal with it now. We go to our routines. We process things that are in our control and kind of go from there. So I know that's somewhat of a long-winded answer, but that's how I kind of frame it for these players. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so you've used the words routines and processes a lot. Like, can you give an example of what that looks like? And it can be general, but sure. I, I I think when we're looking at processes, routines, rituals, those kind of words, it's something we are doing repeatedly that has a it does have a link to an outcome, right? So a process for me in a pre-shot routine could be I'm going to take information in, I'm going to analyze it, I'm going to make a decision, I'm going to execute a shot. Within that routine, I am uh, using my mind to make decisions, I'm visualizing, I'm taking a practice swing, I'm taking a, a, a smooth breath, I'm walking into it with purpose. Those would be all steps in the process to do what? To get me in an optimal state to execute a golf shot. So the process is leading to some form of an outcome and it's repeatable. And that's part of a routine. So it could be a pre-round routine. How early do you get to the golf course? What do you do when you're at the golf course? Post-shot routine. What do I do after I've ex executed the golf shot? How am I going to respond to it? Post-round routine. How do I learn from it and jot down in my, in my journal what I did well today? Those would be repeatable behaviors that are linked to, they are linked to a result. Okay. So that's how I get into the broad picture that I look at it. Um, when I ask people, do you have a pre-shot routine? They go, yeah, 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 I do. And I go, oh, does it, do, do you commit to 100% of your shots? And they go, well, no. Then I go, well, then your routine doesn't work. 
So they're going to want to tell me, okay, I stand behind it. I walk in, I do all, and they show me all this physical stuff, yet they can't communicate what their process is mentally. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my biggest pet peeves is when I ask people about, you know, the mental game and they say, oh, it's about not thinking. I go, holy smokes. I said, that's as far from it as possible. I understand there's times to think and times to not think. But to me, golf is just an unbelievable sport to think, to process, to take strategy, to – I think that's awesome about it, okay? I would never want somebody to, to not think on a golf course, okay? So to me, processes um, help us get to a default mode. So with flow code, we're looking at what are some triggers that I can do in my routine that would be linked to me being in a flow state. Sometimes that's visualization. Sometimes it's tempo and some, I mean, there's, there's a ton of these triggers that could help people and everybody may have a slightly different routine. So there's not one size fits all out, out there. It's yeah. It's interesting. Like the not thinking, like, I love the, well, I just don't think and hit it. I'm like, is that real? Or are you just not paying attention to what you're thinking about? That That's a good point. And again, I think when we look at like flow state, we know that the brainwave activity is going down for sure uh, at the moment of performance. Golf is an interesting sport because it's non-reactionary that there's a there's an ebb and flow of brainwave activity. I get to my second shot on a par four. I would hope I'm thinking about the lie and the wind and how firm the screen is and what my landing distance is here and where the winds come. That's processing a lot of information, everybody. <laughs> Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't just aimlessly aim anywhere and just pick aimlessly a club. You actually make a decision based on focusing in the present moment, which is analyzing information. That's thinking everybody. I process it. I make a decision. Then I start to wind down the thinking into performing and doing, and we go into creative mindsets and all these type of things. In the moment of executing, I- I'm not going to disagree with somebody that says, hey, I went blank and I hit a great shot. Okay, that's one way. Or a lot of the research says I need to be externally narrow. I'm going to still think of my target out there, the flagstick or the shot tracer. Great. And I, Colin Morikawa has won uh, tournaments with a swing thought before. And people say, oh, you should not have a swing thought. I go, okay, well, he won the 2020 Workday uh, Championship against JT with a swing thought all week. Okay. So, we, it's a matter of though that swing thought was something that could help him commit to a shot. It helped him minimize other distractions. There, I think people look at the mental game, I think too much black and white. It's like, Oh, no thinking. It's like, no, no, no. There's a, there's a, there's this funneling effect that happens with thinking and focus. And just because I have a swing thought doesn't mean I still can't play some great golf. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think we, we need to have a gray area a little bit more when it comes to to the mental side. Well, I think like the the zone would be kind of like when Tiger taught. I don't know if you ever saw those little videos of Tiger Zone where he talked about how he felt like he was watching himself. Like I was, it was like it was outer body experience. Right. Sure. But there's also times where he's like, well, I feel this in my hands, you know, to hit shots. So it's like, is the kind of the end goal when you're truly in that zone where it is completely like a, I don't know, subconscious the way to put it. You could, I mean, part of flow is you're fully immersed in the present moment, period. Okay. Flow, flow follows focus. So me being immersed in the present moment um, and being aware of my environment. And in one time I could feel my hands on the club face. We call that a deep embodiment trigger. I am so in tuned with the club, my body and club feel one. 
some other people are using um, creativity as a trigger. Now, if I could just see this shot and, you know, and they get lost in the shot, like a Bubba Watson creating golf shots that keeps him in the present moment. There's other we call cognitive triggers um, that like risk, for instance, if uh, you have a risky shot, you're underneath the trees or something. A lot of people pull those off unbelievably. They're thinking, but they lose themselves in the problem solving. And oh, if I hit it underneath this tree and I hit a low cut, they get lost in the moment. That's what we're we're trying to do is get so focused in the present moment. That's all that matters. There's different ways that can trigger that for people. And that's the fun part. And you're right. Day to day, it might change slightly. But some of these routines and some of the ways the tiger carried himself were similar. He may have a different um, experience that's happening. But I guarantee you, he's fully in the present moment. You know, I had um, this is something I've never been able to explain, but I have I had days where I would just put lights out like 11 putts per nine holes. And like I could almost see the line like it was almost illuminated. What is that? <laughs> Well, it's back to, you know, flow follows focus. Clear goals is a way to focus us. When you see it with such clarity, the body has no interference. It's going, oh, that's what you want. Okay, good. And it becomes more of a read react type of thing. And then there's other times we get over and go, uh, is this six inches outside right edge four? And then you put your, some people put their line down over the ball and they look over, they go, that doesn't feel right. And, and there's so much interference. There's so much that they're so now, disassociated from the result of what they want that they're, they're just want to they're just hit and hope. Right. Mm -hmm. So the clarity that you have creates also confidence because there is zero doubt. That's what I see. Let's go. But it's back to clear goals. Clear goals does provide focus and then we can react accordingly. So there becomes actually less to think about because you've already given it a direction. It's a, it's a good software program. You've given your, your hardware. Uh, there's no virus. There's no, uh, <laughs> there's no malware happening at that time. So like the players that have too much of that interference, they can't see that stuff. Is there strategies they can do while they're out there? Or is this more of like how they've trained type thing? I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's both to that. Like you've, yeah, yeah. I think it's a little bit of both. I think um, I always, it's always an interesting conversation when I ask somebody, do you visualize a shot before you hit it? And I have, let's say 25% of, of my clients say, no, I'm not very good at visualizing. I go, well, how do you know to aim at anything? Well, you know, Rick, I, I picked that tree in the distance. I go, okay, well, that's a picture. <laughs> okay. And, and I start to ask them questions. So I'm very much into asking questions will create images. So if I say, Hey, um, what does a good shot look like here as a framework? And they go, well, what do you mean? I go, well, what club are you using? Well, I'm hitting a seven iron. Okay, great. Is it a full swing or three quarter? Uh, it's three quarter. Uh, where are you starting this? Um, 15 feet left of the hole. There's a palm tree out there. I go, great. Uh, what story of the building is it going to go up? Third floor, fifth floor. Uh, yeah, I'm going to hit a little higher. I'm going to go sixth floor. Is it going to go straight? Uh, no, it's going to hit a little cut. And what I do is I keep asking questions. And before you know it, words are symbols. So now I've created a whole visualization for them. I'm hitting a three-quarter seven iron, sixth window, starting at the palm tree. It's going to be a hold-off cut. It's going to land at 171 yards. It's going to—it's like, whoa, right? Those are those that say, hey, I'm not creative or not. Great, let's talk the shot out then, okay? Um, so that's one way. I think, you know, like we talk about putting, which is is interesting. I have people like putt on the, uh, the green in the morning dew. 
right? So they see the line in the morning dew, they go, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. Or I'll use, you know, teas to create gates and stuff like that so they can frame it. Um, and then some people say, well, I kind of see it, but I'm a feel player. I go, great. Then we better be in tune with our feel and we better have a, but you still have to have a target to feel, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and some people are going to be like, I'm more of a, a, a still picture kind of guy. Like I'll see a bullseye in the distance. Like I'm going to just throw a ball to. Other people can see the shot tracer. Other people can uh, do a a disassociated. I see myself hit the shot like it's on a movie screen. So that's the that's the creativity that I would encourage the listeners is have fun with that. Um, uh, Or my favorite one was pretend somebody else is hitting it. Like I was a big Fred Couples fan when growing up. So, hey, Freddie, you go hit it for me. And it it provided creativity and he's going to hit a little cut. Let's just have him hit the cut. I'm stepping into it as Fred Couple. So there's a That's lot cool. of ways that we can utilize creativity and visualization. Um, but my favorite one is asking questions to elicit answers that you're going to have to, if I say, where are you going to aim? They're going to go, okay, that tree. Great. Now I at least have a starting point. And then where's it going to finish? Right. And so we create that as a framework for their visualization. This might be an interesting or broad question, but why is visualization important? Well, again, part of flow code is I'm not saying visualization is important for everybody because we have different people like deep embodiment trigger, which is the feel player who the practice swing becomes their way to connect to a target. I'm going to feel my practice swing a three quarter, three quarter hold off seven. I'm going to feel that before I get into it. I think visualization um, has been proven to one, create a clear goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, we don't want to have ambiguity of, well, I kind of want to hit a seven iron here, but don't double cross it left. And, and now you have multiple pictures that are happening, which creates confusion. It's, this is clarity. This is what I want. So focus ha- likes to have a clear, clear answer. Visualization has also been uh, linked to confidence. If I see success happen before it happens, I'm going to more likely feel I can do it. If I'm like, I, I can't even see this putt. I don't know how it's going to – good luck, right? There's also yeah, now yeah. doubt doubt built in. And then how I use visualization also is from a behavioral standpoint. I was a hothead in college and, and frustrated. And part of what helped me was back at home, not even on the golf course, see myself behave differently on the golf course. Hey, if you do three putt, how are you going to behave? Well, the old Rick was slam a club. You suck, Rick. And, you know, now it's, huh, I wonder why that putt went there or take a deep breath or it doesn't always have to be positive, but I use visualization as a way to rehearse different scenarios in different situations. And for me, that was very powerful from a behavioral standpoint. So visualization or mental rehearsal is a way to replace habits. Uh, I can now, if I'm working on a swing technique, I can see myself with that improved takeaway um, there's ways that we're, we're trying to, it, it creates more repetition, right? We're creating a different type of a repetition if it's very clear, by the way. So that's how I would answer that. No, that's, that's wonderful. So I definitely want to get into your flow code stuff, but I have one more question before we do, um, you know, if there was, and again, this could be very broad, but you know, if there's one thing that you see most players kind of fall into a trap of mentally, what, what do you think that would be? It's a great question. Um, so I always talk about the big three, focus, confidence, and emotions. And I think they're so interwoven. Um, I think people underestimate the importance of emotions. Uh, I think after the fact, they certainly 
they get mad and say, ah, I probably shouldn't get mad. I go, okay, maybe or maybe not. But if that emotion now affects the next shot, which it, it did for me, uh, I was frustrated, which now led to the next decision being risky and quick, which now less, led to another uh, bogey. And I was on the bogey train, not because I wasn't a good golfer, it's because my emotional state was now dictating my focus. It was dictating my decision-making. So I think people, if they could look at their emotions a little bit more, um, we talked about the roller coaster of emotions, whether it's excitement to fear, to frustration, to sad, whatever. That's a lot for the system, my physiological system to try to deal with. Okay. I am not saying you should be a robot, please. But how long does that emotion stay with you? The duration is really the um, the secret sauce. Uh, Tiger got mad in the past. John Rom gets mad. Okay. How quickly they can get back to neutral is the skill. Okay. So I, I think most people um, do not manage or regulate their emotions very well on the golf course, which now has a, a domino effect um, across the board. Yeah. No, that's perfect. So let's talk about flow code and what that means, how players can get involved if they want to. So what, you know, if you had to explain the program, what is it an online program? Yeah. yeah, Thanks for, um, for asking. So it's, it's an online program, flowcode.golf. And we have, we actually certify coaches in in our, in the method. Um, We have a lot of coaches who want to add mental game coaching to their, to their business. uh, And that's been really uh, I just really have enjoyed being able to interact with so many coaches that are passionate about that. And then we have a business to consumer model, which is the golfer out there who, you know, wants to start training the mental game, knows it's important, doesn't know how quite to train it. Um, so we have like a, a membership uh, on there. We have, I don't know, I know we have hundreds of videos and manuals and and different things for you to create your own your own flow code. It's a framework that we're putting out there for you to play your best golf. And the framework Yes, it's mostly about a, a mental side, but there's some, even some stuff on how to practice and golf swing stuff um, that's very basic because I believe that in this day and age, we've made the golf swing quite complicated, which mm-hmm. now leads to more distraction, which now leads to more doubt, which now leads to somebody not being able to perform on the golf course. So I do address some of those those issues um, in Floco. So yeah, it's an online platform. Um, we're real excited about it. We just launched a junior flow code golf academy um and we're going to be doing starting in 2023 some group coaching models some in-person golf schools so we're very excited about it um i have a team team that i work with that uh, we're very passionate about moving this forward it's awesome what's so what's the model so the player signs up for your program essentially what is the kind of framework of the program Sure. So once they become a member, they they have access now to the hundreds of videos and we put them through kind of like a step by step. Hey, let's okay. let's identify what your goals are. Mm-hmm. Let's identify some routines. So there's a lot of videos on pre-shot routine, post-shot routine. We talk about different mindsets, different triggers, like, for instance, uh, breathing, which is we didn't talk about it, is an extremely important tool and technique to utilize on the golf course. It is. Now, when to use it? What's the ratio of inhale, exhale? We talk a lot about those things depending on the state you're in. Most people are told to take a deep breath. We at Flowcode will never tell you to take a deep breath. Uh, We tell you to take a rhythmic breath. We take you to take a smooth breath. If you're feeling stressed, the inhale might be two, exhale might be four. There's different ratios depending on how you want to change your state. So we go through all the breathing stuff. We go through how you physically should warm up. So it's, it's it's very interactive in that the person can kind of 
go through these different channels and, hey, let me experiment with that. We have this thing called a 21-day challenge that my partner, Hallam Morgan, has done, which is awesome. Like day to day, what are the things I can do to help me focus better? And so we have a lot of you know creative ways to, to help you get into a flow state. That's wonderful. Well, if you got like a minute or two, I would love to hear your thoughts on warm up because I know that's big when I get asked about a lot. Sure. I mean, warm up, um, I guess you could look at it as is warm up just something that I go from. Um, is that just a physical thing? Right. So I get to the golf course an hour beforehand and I've done my stretching and I've hit some balls on the range. We can call that a physical warm up. I look at it as preparation. I'm preparing to be at my best on the first tee. And to me, there's a physical part of that. Certainly there's a mental and emotional part. The, the mental part could be on the range. I'm going to go through my full pre-shot routine five times to ignite visualization, or I'm going to do visualization of my first tee shot today twice. So I can really see it. I'm going to feel a little nervousness right now. I'm warming up my mental side. Um, the thing with emotions, uh, we, at flow code talk a lot about mindsets. So for instance, if I go to the first tee and I'm grateful for being there, I've already framed it in a different way than, Oh crap, I don't want to screw up. I don't want to embarrass myself. I'm grateful. This is awesome. I get to go play golf today. I get to play in this beautiful golf course. I get to play with these people. I get to push myself and compete. So we talk a lot about uh, cognitive reframing of how can I look at something before it's even begun? So when you say warm up, it's a loaded question for me because it, <laughs> it could be about mindfulness at the hotel. It could be about yoga stretching. It could be how many balls do you hit on the range? It could be about mindset. It could be visualization. It could be about breathing. Guess what? You get to create your own flow code. It's your own framework to see how are you going to be ready on the first tee. One of my pet, pet peeves is competitive golfers saying, you know what? The first few holes, I'm just going to see how it goes. I go, good luck. Everybody else is making birdies and you're trying to see how it's going to go. Let's make birdie on the first hole. Let's get going. Let's be ready on the first hole. So I then reverse engineer what would have to happen mentally, emotionally, physically for somebody to be ready on that first tee. Yeah. Well, Rick, I really appreciate it. I mean, I, we could go on for hours <laughs> on, on all those wormholes, but um, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. I encourage everybody to check out your website, check out Floco. It sounds amazing. Uh, I definitely will do that. I'll link to that in the description too. So everybody can thank you. get access to that. But thank you so much for your time. It was really, really great talk. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to the end of the show. And I put links in here for Rick's program, The Flow Code. And, you know, I would highly recommend checking it out. He's been highly successful. A lot of people are successful using his content. So it would be really worth checking out. Link should be in the description for you. And again, thanks for listening this far. We'll see you in that next show.